discussed with Tom, uh, Tom Long from the University of Warwick, uh, uh, his ongoing uh, research into really the um, kind of diplomatic history of Latin America, but most crucially locating that, that work in the context of international relations theory. Um, and this is in many ways what makes, to my mind, uh, Tom's work so interesting and uh, worth engaging with. Uh, so today, uh, Tom is going to present a paper as looking, well, he will tell you himself uh, uh, the work that he's doing, but looking effectively at the kind of trajectory of regionalism in uh, Latin America, particularly with, in relationship between the US and Latin America. And I should, of course, highlight as well, if you haven't had a chance to do so yet, to pick up uh, Tom's book on um, US-Latin American relations, uh, give you the title, that's image, give it the uh, title. Of <laughs> Latin America confronts the United States, asymmetry and influence which is a study of the asymmetrical relationship between, between the US and Latin America that really brings in that IR theory into the, the history of the relations as, as, they, have, uh, as they have evolved over, over time. Right? So I really encourage you to pick up a copy if you haven't had a chance to do so yet. But uh, Tom, over to you, and then we're going to have a chance for a discussion after that. Great. Well, thank you very much for coming, and thank you for the for the invitation. It's uh, a pleasure to be here to talk about this paper, which is um, a work in progress, but one that's, that's, that's relatively far along. I'm finishing up an R&R on it, so, so comments are particularly welcome because I'm at a perfect stage to, to integrate them uh, and to, to think through things, um, in addition to those pointed out by three anonymous peer reviewers. Um, so, so I really would appreciate your, your thoughts on this paper. But first, I wanted to say a quick thank you. Um, this project's received some, some funding for archival work. It draws on archival work in Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, um, and the United States, and State Department and Truman Library Archives. Um, so uh, that wouldn't have been possible without those three uh, institutions there. So I just want to recognize that. So on August 31st, 1947, U.S. President Harry Truman boarded his new plane, the Independence, named for his Missouri hometown, and began a 28-hour trip to Rio de Janeiro. When he arrived, the New York Times breathlessly wrote the next day that fully half of the city of two million shouted a warm and friendly greeting to President Truman. The welcome was literally wafted over the waters of Rio de Janeiro Bay to the president even before he came ashore. Torn paper apparently flung by the ton from skyscrapers was picked up by a cooling breeze and delivered like a soft snowfall into the path of the launch that bore him into the city. Truman spent a week in Rio de Janeiro cruising the bay, uh, suffering a minor auto accident on Corcovado, dining with Gaspar Dutra, the Brazilian president, uh, and helping Brazil ring in the 125th anniversary of its independence. In the middle of all of that sightseeing, Truman addressed the Inter-American uh, Inter Defense Conference to celebrate the signature of the Inter-American Treaty of Reciprocal Assistance, better known as the Rio Pact. That would be seen by many contemporaries and later scholars as the culmination of post-war U.S. dominance over the Americas. After his speech, Truman welcomed Latin American delegates from the conference uh, aboard the battleship Missouri, 
The very same ship where Douglas MacArthur had, of course, accepted the surrender of Imperial Japan. The next day, Truman left Rio to enjoy a cruise back to the United States. And I think for many observers, this really captured the moment. There was some rather forced cheering from Latin Americans aboard the very symbol of U.S. military might, and then a voyage away from Latin America and back to the more pressing preoccupations of the early Cold War period. Such was the recreation of the inter-American order at the apex of U.S. power. Or was it? I'm going to propose a re-examination of the recreation of inter-American order during this post-war period, particularly in the light of, uh, of an IR debate on the emergence of regional security orders from these critical junctures, what, in this case, what John Eikenberry called an actor victory moment, focusing on these three questions. So first of all, a big IR question, why do these kinds of multilateral region, uh, security arrangements emerge in contrast to other types of arrangements, such as U.S. hub and spokes arrangements that were, were common with, uh, in Asia in the post-war period and throughout the Cold War? So why do they take certain forms, in a sense? And then secondly, because as I'll discuss, much of this IR literature has been really focused on the decisions, the motivations, uh, and the actions of great powers, um, what is it that secondary states, particularly Brazil and Mexico in this instance, are looking for uh, in the creation of regional security arrangements? So I'll focus on these three questions, um, in particular in the context of this IR debate. Just to lay out the debate, um, both in IR and as it is focused on the inter-American system during, uh, during this period, I think we can look at, at sort of traditional accounts that have focused largely on the role of external threat. This is the leading explanation that is focused on as, as, as the cause of regional security arrangements. That is, NATO is created, of course, because there is a perceived threat from the, from the Soviet Union. There's also a large IR literature on the importance of great power sponsorship of regional orders, global orders to some extent as, as well. So whether that's under hegemonic stability theory or, or different guises, um, it's thought that these, are, these uh, tend to emerge, these regional orders tend to emerge where when you have a, a paymaster, a great power who's willing to carry the, the burden. In that line, um, Peterson has argued that we see cooperative hegemony uh, in Western Europe, um, particularly a bit later, not, not in the immediate post-war period, sponsored by West Germany, um, that is seen that it, uh, it, it will no longer be the dominant economic power, and so it's willing to strike some bargain, bargains with other, with other states uh, in, in Europe. So all of these traditional accounts have really focused on the perceptions and the actions of, uh, of great powers. Likewise, John Eikenberry, talking at a global level, emphasizes great power choice, and he says that great powers, when they win a systemic conflict, can choose to either dominate the ensuing international system, withdraw from that system, which is what he argues the US did after World War I, or try to build a constitutional order which is what Eichenberry sees the U.S. as having done after World War II. 
Again, all of these really focus on the role of, of the great power and don't say, uh, say too much about what secondary states want out of these bargains. More to the point on regional security orders, there's a debate in international relations that's often summarized in the title of an article by Chris Himmer and Peter Katzenstein called Why Is There No NATO in Asia? And according to Himmer and Katzenstein, you get a, a sort of a confluence of factors during this post-war moment that favor the emergence of, uh, of, of multilateralism in the North Atlantic and the creation of a new region, essentially, in the minds of policymakers in the North Atlantic, while we see a bilateral model emerge between the United States and Asia based, of course, on U.S.-Japan security cooperation. So Himmer and Katzenstein, and I'll come back to their factors in a little bit more depth, uh, emphasize the role of threat, not surprisingly, the role of power, by which they largely mean the existence of other great powers that can share burdens of providing security, and finally, the role of identity. Uh, and again, I'll come back to these factors a, a bit more. But this debate, which is, was a, a rather lively debate in IR, about the emergence of regional security orders more broadly, um, has ignored almost entirely what was happening in the inter-American system at the very same time. And I think there are a couple reasons for this, in addition to the fact that, that international relations theory has paid very little attention to, to the Americas in, in general. Um, and that's that explanations within the historical literature, the diplomatic history literature, and in IR, coming from those, have tended to emphasize factors that are relatively similar to those traditional explanations, that is, US-centric explanations for what was going on. For example, the historian uh, Lester Langley has written of this period that, quote, the United States generally got what it wanted, Latin Americans did not. The Brazilian historian Jefferson Mora uh, wrote that the formation of this system was, quote, no more than the juridical and political framework for irreversible U.S. hegemony over the continent. And so in this interpretation, there's really not that much of interest to study in, in this period. It's a continuation of the U.S. dominance that existed before the war. However, I think that that uh, is, is a mistake. In fact, I think that if we ask this question, the same sorts of questions that are present in the why is there no NATO in Asia debate, and ask them of the case of the inter-American system during the same years, uh, we, show, we see that those factors, emphasized by Himmer and Katzenstein and, and a number of others, don't have a lot of explanatory purchase uh, in the Americas. So, whoops, I hadn't realized that slide was blank. <laughs> uh, so, this is um, essentially how Himmer and Katzenstein treat this. Um, they give kind of a dichotomous picture. In, on the one hand, you have multilateral security institutions emerging in the North Atlantic. You don't have those emerging uh, in East Asia. If we were to adopt this, uh, a purely dichotomous treatment of this, and of course, in practice, multilateralism takes all sorts of different forms, um, I'm going to argue that the Americas uh, in the post-war period constitute a multilateral system by, by the definitions used in, in IR. So that is, on the one hand, 
Um, they facilitate cooperation in a way that, that, that Cohen talks about. Um, if we look at John Ruggie's work on multilateralism, he emphasizes the presence of collective security arrangements. And we see both of those happening um, in, the, in the inter-American system at this time. So if you buy that, and we can, we can certainly come back to it, if you buy that the, that the post-war inter-American system constitutes a form of multilateralism because it has these factors of a collective security declaration in the Rio Treaty, uh, an organization to make political decisions, as well as having a host of, playing a host of other roles, um, having a political council where the United States cannot exercise a, a, a veto, even if it often coerces other states to get the, vo the votes that, that it wants. So if you buy that um, explanation that this is indeed a type of collective uh, multilateral security architecture emerging from, from this period, then I think the next important uh, the next important factor is to establish that this could have gone a different way. So uh, my explanation, my response to Himmer and Katzenstein's focus on these three factors uh, is situated in historical institutionalism. And in historical institutionalism, there's a focus on critical junctions. And I'll, I would argue that in the, in the, the post-war period, for the inter-American system, this constituted a real critical juncture. Why? Um, so there was a real sense of contingency and doubt. That is, the, it was not taken for granted by actors at this historical moment that the pan-American system that existed before World War II would continue after the war, let alone that it would be strengthened in different respects. So in the United States in particular, there was strong opposition to this. And this opposition was uh, a leading factor during the, the, the planning for the post-war global security architecture. So the key US planner and, and architect of the Dumbarton Oaks plan, um, Leo Pozwolski, envisioned a global system focused on the UN Security Council in which regional agreements like those that had existed in the Americas would be subsumed and would largely disappear. Uh, as I'll talk about, Latin Americans push back against this, um, but the focus that Pozwolski has on this global system and the broad support that his vision enjoys in the US government um, creates a real sense of doubt, a real a real uh, critical juncture that things could have turned out differently. That critical juncture is then again highlighted at the San Francisco conference in 1945, um, where Pozwolski's version uh, of, of, the, of the global system forms the basis for post-war plans. Um, Latin American diplomats had been excluded from the Dumbarton Oaks planning had pushed back after those plans were released, thought they had got their message through to US policymakers, and then arrived to San Francisco to see that Pozwolski's plan has emerged again relatively intact. So at San Francisco, Latin American uh, diplomats organized to, to push back against the United States, in, uh, against what is, again, I, I emphasize, 
a real a critical juncture, a, a real moment of doubt um, in which things could have gone other, another way. So critical junctures in the, in the historical institutionalist literature more broadly are seen as a loosening of structural constraints. So the post-war moment um, creates an uncertainty, of this loosening of structural constraints, an increased space for agency of both US and Latin American actor, actors, and a possibility of divergent outcomes. And in fact, we see those divergent outcomes when we compare regions um, in this period, as, as Himmer and Katzenstein do, and as I'm, I'm adding to here. Himmer and Katzenstein's explanation, as I mentioned, emphasizes these three particular factors. Great power status, other great powers that will share burdens, uh, external threat perceptions, and a shared common identity. And what they argue is that in the North Atlantic, US policymakers believed that though the, sort of the, the traditional great powers were on the outs, were weakened by the war, they would return and they would be able to help carry the burden of providing security in Europe. On the other hand, as I mentioned, the US looked at Asia and saw only Japan as a possible, uh, a possible ally there or a possible uh, security provider there and so favored a bilateral system. When it came to threat perceptions, the threat perceptions that the US had in Europe were quite clear, focused on the Soviet Union, um, and led the U.S. to prioritize uh, security arrangements in this area. And Himmer and Katzenstein really add to these explanations by focusing on the role of shared identity. And what they say is that members of the policymaking elite in Western Europe and in the United States saw themselves as forming part of a shared Western civilization. And because they had this civilizational commonality, they were able to, uh, to, to cooperate more easily, but more importantly, US policymakers were able to entrust uh, Western European policymakers with greater responsibilities. On the other hand, they contrast that with US views of their Asian counterparts. Those views were characterized by racism, prejudice, a lack of trust. Right? And this did not facilitate uh, multilateral arrangements in which the U.S. would give up or share a certain amount of control. So that holds, that explains across their two cases quite well. But when we add the inter-American case to this, uh, I would suggest that it doesn't. When we look at expectations of great powers, the United States did not, ex did not expect any Latin American states to be great powers. There was some flirtation with the idea of including Brazil on the Security Council. FDR mentions this possibility in uh, 1944 and early 1945, um, but doesn't take it seriously enough to even discuss it with the Brazilians, um, and tosses out this proposal relatively quickly when it meets opposition. Um, regarding threat perceptions, of course, there would be heightened US threat perceptions around communism later. But in the immediate post-war period, uh, the United States and CIA assessments make this quite clear, the predecessor of the CIA in the, the immediate post-war period make it clear that the United States was not particularly worried about 
communist threats in, uh, in Latin America, and saw this as a relatively secure area for U.S. security interests. Um, and when it comes to identity, I would argue that U.S. Uh, attitudes toward Latin American policymakers uh, were shared more with, with those toward, uh, the, of U.S. policymakers toward Asians at this same time. That is, they're characterized by, by prejudice, um, particularly at, at the higher level. So you can see this in, kind of, uh, in, in infamous reports by George Kinnan, who took a 1950 tour of the region and emphasized to U.S. policymakers the racial deficiencies of Latin Americans uh, and why he did not see Latin America as being a region on the, on the upswing. So if those three factors emphasized in the literature don't provide a convincing explanation for why we see a form of multilateral security uh, architecture emerging in the immediate post-war period, what does? I argue that we can better understand the emergence or non-emergence across these three cases by including uh, what I call shared historical antecedents of regionalism, which is a clunky term and an even worse acronym as SHAR. Um, and if we look at these, the role of antecedents and the way in which antecedents are used and are made causal um, in these critical junctures, we can understand both um, the congruence with the outcomes. We have, we have congruent outcomes with, with that explanation. And we can understand something about the form that regionalism, regional security cooperation takes. So just very briefly, what are SHAR? Um, so SHAR are different from just historical context, which of course is discussed in the, the literature on the emergence of, of regional cooperation more broadly. Shar are particular forms of regional cooperation that happen before a critical juncture and then become causally salient during that critical juncture through the actions taken by agents in that critical juncture. Right? So they give agents something to seize onto to push for a preferred outcome. Um, Shar can operate through, uh, through a, a number of different mechanisms. I, I focus on four different mechanisms. Um, they can create coalitions, both amongst, in this case, amongst Latin American policymakers and between Latin American policymakers and the supporters of regional solutions in the United States. They facilitate uh, problems, or they pardon me, facilitate solutions to uh, coordination problems. They, give a, they create a language through which Latin American policy ma uh, makers in particular can make claims on the United States. And they, make, they, they provide for arguments that there exists a favorable distribution of costs and benefits. That is, anti antecedent cooperation, in a sense, uh, produces a type of increasing returns or promises to produce a type of increasing returns after the critical juncture that incentivizes policymakers to continue and to build on those antecedents. So in the, the Inter-American case, there are lots of antecedents of cooperation. 
um, which I think are analytically distinct from the, the types of identity factors, shared identity that him and Katzenstein are, are talking about. So of course we have the Pan-American Union, which has been built up over a process of several decades. We have, uh, we have customs of, cooper of consultation, pardon me, um, in which, uh, and this is really strengthened during, during World War II, in which Latin American uh, diplomats push for and are largely granted a consultation on US uh, policy, or at least are informed about US policy decisions. Um, this is one reason, by the way, why the, the, the release of the Dumbarton Oaks plan produced a, a real uproar in Latin American diplomatic circles because this had been planned without consultation. It was a violation of what they saw uh, as a Pan-American norm of, of consultation. Um, and it was remedied by the United States in a series of, of, of meetings at, at the Blair House in which Latin American diplomats were essentially filled in on the details of these of the Dumbarton Oaks plans. So um, we have these kinds of processes. We have instance, instances of, of mediation, um, also often pushed by, by Latin American states, such as the, the ABC mediation uh, in the US-Mexico conflict, um, that serve as important antecedents onto that, that, that agents, Latin American agents and supportive US agents can grab during this critical juncture to push for their preferred policy options. Just to talk a little bit about how we see some of these empirically, um, and I'll focus on, on just a couple key moments. As I mentioned, there is blowback from Latin America about the Dumbarton Oaks plan. First of all, about the manner in which it was put together without Latin American consultation, and secondly, for the way in which it ignored and obviated and seemed to delete the, uh, the Pan-American system. And you have Latin American leaders repeatedly uh, expressing the, the value that they attach to this, uh, to this system and making claims explicitly using the language of previous U.S. commitments to the Pan-American system. FDR responds to this directly and pushes for a series of, or agrees to a series of consultative meetings, um, and that culminates, of course, in the 1945 conference in Mexico, Mexico City, uh, the Chapultepec conference, um, at which Latin American leaders repeatedly make their claims about the, continue, the importance of the continuation of and strengthening of an inter-American system after the war in the language that resonates with, with Shar. So the Brazilian foreign minister, Pedro Leon Veloso, for example, stresses the evolutionary progression of the inter-American system and quote says, the machinery shaped in previous meetings will be further perfected and the structure of the continental system built up through patient and constant work will be ready to adjust itself to the future international system. So emphasizing a, a, a sort of a coincidence, a happy harmony between a regional level and, and an international level. This wasn't just a, a point of, of sort of the large states in Latin America. You had uh, Paraguay emphasizing that, quote, it must be emphasized that the, that the Pan-American system is so real and concrete that no American state could renounce its benefits, which have been achieved over 50 years of joint efforts. 
emphasizing uh, the expectation of increased or continued returns from inter-American system, from, from the inter-American system, from a particular form of cooperation uh, that is under threat in this critical juncture, um, is going to be subsumed to some extent uh, into a global order. Um, However, as I mentioned, um, we, we have Latin Americans leaving Chapultepec relatively happy with what has been achieved. There is good feeling on the most part, some disappointment around the vagueness of economic promises. But on political issues, and particularly on U.S. commitments to continue a regional system, that would recognize sovereignty and non-intervention as the cornerstone of, of that system, that would give Latin American states privileged access, voice opportunities in the language of IR, and would promise some sort of restraint on behalf of the United States, Latin American diplomats are relatively satisfied with this. Until the next month they arrive to San Francisco and see that none of that none of the language of Chapultepec has been included in the, the plans. And indeed, Leo Pazwolski tells Latin American, uh, Latin American delegates at San Francisco that the U.S. doesn't see itself as being bound by the acts of Chapultepec or by any previous, uh, previous U.S. Pan-American commitments, that the text of the Dumbarton Oaks Agreement, hammered out between the big three, will serve as the basis for regional, for, for the future world order, right? This, the hand of the regionalists is uh, further weakened by the composition of the U.S. delegation and particularly by the death of Franklin Roosevelt in the, in, uh, before the, the San Francisco conference. Um, Key U.S. architects of inter-American cooperation who had been leading figures at Chapultepec like Nelson Rockefeller uh, find themselves largely sidelined in the run-up to San Francisco. And so Latin American leaders are dealing with a largely different group of, of U.S. diplomats. In response, uh, they threaten a walkout of the San Francisco conference. They uh, they essentially use Shar to, to build a coalition, first amongst Latin American states, so you have people like the Colombian president, um, Yeras Camargo, leading an effort to, to put together Latin American, a Latin American uh, coalition to oppose the, the U.S. exclusion, Pazwolski's exclusion of regional systems from the new United Nations system, uh, and calling up their old friends, quite literally. Uh, they call Nelson Rockefeller, who was uh, a correspondent and a longtime contact of Vieras Camargo's, and get him to pressure his own delegation. They contact Arthur Vandenberg, the, the senator, um, who had been involved in regional and pan-American efforts. And somewhat surprisingly, they also turn to figures inside the U.S. defense establishment, like Secretary of War Henry Stimson, and appeal to Stimson's uh, attachment to the Monroe Doctrine, a form of the Monroe Doctrine of which most Latin Americans were not particularly fond, uh, to, to push for a type of grand bargain um, that would institutionalize and extend 
U.S. influence in exchange for institutional restraints on the unilateral exercise of U.S. power. However, what emerges as a change of U.S. position or a compromise in UN Article 51 that carves out space for regional systems was not driven by uh, respect for Latin American delegates or a sense of shared identity. And in fact, um, U.S. diplomats who were pushing for a global solution instead recommended placating Latin American concerns only with public statements and then not following through on them, saying that those statements would, quote, be very welcomed by the Latins. They are a touchy and emotional people who like to be catered to and patted on the back. This is the type of language and view that is quite common, of course, in U.S. policymaking circles at the time. Moving forward, Latin Americans extract not only UN Article 51, but a promise, a public promise from Harry Truman uh, for a security conference to create an international, an inter-American, pardon me, uh, security system due to U.S. disputes with Argentina, largely, uh, that is postponed uh, for about a year uh, from when, a bit over a year from when it was initially expected to, to be held. Um, however, what emerges in, in the Rio conference in 1947, in many ways, echoes the plans coming out of the immediate post-war period more so than it does any new uh, Cold War preoccupations from the United States. And again, what we see is a united Latin American front on issues of security and political cooperation, security and political regionalism, even as there was less Latin American consensus around issues like collective defense of democracy, for example, or on economic policy. We have Latin American uh, diplomats, Brazilians and Mexicans in particular, appealing to the antecedents of the Pan-American and Inter-American organizations um, as, as being uh, sort of the basis for regional cooperation in the post-war period, um, arguing that, quote, contrary, that, sorry, that having a centralized body like the UN Security Council over the Americas that would give the United States a particular role in veto would be, quote, contrary to the traditional bases of the inter-American system, which are, which are not set in the existence of a central body of political character, but in the harmonious action of the diverse states that comprise it. Um, we also see antecedents appearing in much more pragmatic ways. So a lot of the planning that happens for this, the, the coordination problems that would exist in coming to these agreements are overcome through planning at the Pan-American Union physically and through the mechanisms of, and norms of, of consultations that had, had been developed uh, in the pre-war period. So uh, we have a security or security agreement created there, emphasizing collective security in the Americas, both within the Americas and against the possibility of external threat. Um, and Latin Americans continue to push for a political system that would essentially go alongside it. There is concern in Latin America immediately after the, the Rio conference that the United States is going to be happy with that security agreement and therefore will not pursue any type of, of further agreement to strengthen the inter-American system. Uh, 
In the wake of that, uh, the Mexican foreign minister, Jaime Torres Baudet, uh, emphasizes the role of historical antecedents of the regional system and at the same time the need to modernize it. He, he said that, quote, the inter-American system constitutes without a doubt in this moment the oldest regional body, but its activities are guided by a series of conventions and resolutions. Because these emanated from meetings in different eras and diverse circumstances, the practical result is that they can be difficult to consult and are at times of uncertain contractual value. We have an emphasis in this meeting um, on the need to, uh, to create a new inter-American order, one that draws on these antecedents, but is more than just a continuation of those antecedents. And in a moment, I'll talk about some of, uh, some of what I think were Latin American goals in pushing for this type of order. Again, we see repeated references to, to, to inter-American cooperation, which, some of which one might write off as sort of diplomatic, diplomatic fluff, dip, diplomatic niceties. Um, but they also structure in very concrete ways the type of cooperation that occurs and the type of, uh, of system that comes out of this, of this critical juncture. Um, just to, to wrap up ra rather quickly uh, and to highlight some of what I see being the, the diverse motivations here to, to play off the quote of, about the U.S. role in, in Europe in the post-war period and the creation of, of NATO, I think that the inter-American system for a lot of Latin Americans who were, of course, quite worried about U.S. intervention, for whom U.S. intervention uh, characterized um, a lot of the creation of these antecedents, right? The, 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 the pre-war antecedents emerge in a context in which Latin American leaders are trying to restrain the unilateral exercise of U.S. power. The inter-American system remained their best bet, in a sense. That is, they were not willing to take a gamble on uh, a UN system in which they thought they would have less access to, to the United States uh, and very little access or influence at, at a global level. So they sought to keep Americans in, in a sense, that is, maintain U.S. engagement in the region at a moment when the United States was turning its attentions to, to Europe in particular, and then quickly to, to Asia as well. Out, emphasizing the, the role of sovereign equality and, and non-interference in internal affairs, and down, prescribed from intervening. So not surprisingly, the antecedent that is most emphasized by Latin American policy, policymakers is uh, U.S. non-intervention pledges uh, during the good neighbor period. On the other hand, whoops. Uh, on the other hand, uh, U.S. policymakers, I think, were convinced that this became a grand bargain. There were disagreements in United States policymaking circles about how to handle this. I've mentioned Pazolsky on the one hand, who preferred a, a, a global system. On the other, you have uh, people like Henry Simpson who want to preserve a U.S unilateral exercise of power, a free hand for the United States to intervene uh, in Latin America and particularly in the Caribbean Basin as it had before the Roosevelt era. In fact, Stimson 
complains uh, about some of the commitments that were made before the war by FDR as having limited uh, limited U.S. Uh, or the U.S. ability to pursue its interests uh, in in the Caribbean. However, on on the other side of that, there were U.S. interests in institutionalizing what was actually quite a new level of U.S. influence in South America. I think in a lot of the IR literature in particular, um, and in some of the, the broader histories, of diplomatic histories, U.S. influence in, uh, in South America in the pre-World War II period is, is overemphasized. Of course, right before the, well, shortly before the outbreak of war in Europe, we have very high levels of trade uh, in South America, with South, between South America and, and Europe. We have, uh, we have in, in increasing influence of military advisors from, uh, from Europe, not from the United States, uh, during the late 1920s and 1930s in Latin America. So you often have, uh, have Italian advisors in South America advising the creation of, of air forces. Uh, you have German advisors uh, with the create, or, or French advisors in some countries um, advising militaries. Um, the outbreak of the war changes the economic and the military side of that. Um, the United States becomes almost the only game in town uh, with, as, as, uh, as the war cuts off trade routes to Europe, or, or at least puts a, a damper on those. Um, it also pushes out, of course, many of the, the Axis military advisors, uh, while British military advisors have concerns closer to home. And the United States takes up those influential positions. And the inter-American system that the U.S. agrees to after the war institutional, institutionalizes that, uh, that greater geographically expanded and deepened influence in, in many ways, multilateralizing uh, in, in some senses, in, in the eyes of U.S. policymakers anyway, the, the Monroe Doctrine. So uh, just to offer a few concluding thoughts, um, in response to this IR debate, I, I think that the, the factors that have been emphasized, threat, great powers, identity, for me pretty clearly, don't explain the inter-American case. And I think there are good reasons why we would expect in that explanation to, to go across these three post-war cases, or at least it's pitched as a generalizable explanation. Um, the idea of identity, in particular, shows some, some weaknesses. Uh, it looks much more like it, like it does in, in U.S. perceptions of, of Asian counterparts than, than of European counterparts. And looking instead at uh, the role of historical antecedents and how they're, they're, adopt, how they're utilized in critical junctures can help us explain why we get multilateral agreements in, in one region and not another, and at the same time can help us understand something about the content of those orders. For example, I think uh, it's not, not really in this paper, but, but something um, that I want to come back to, why we, for example, get such a focus on security cooperation and so much frustration um, to, to an extent around economic cooperation. Um, 
So with that, I'll go ahead and, and wrap up. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming. And, and again, very, very interested in any, in any thoughts that, that you might have based on the short presentation, or if you saw the paper, even better. Great. Thank well, you. Thank you very much.